Welcome back to the program. Most of us remember the theme song from MASH, Suicide is Painless. The opening lyrics go something like this. Through early morning fog, I see visions of the things to be, the pains that were withheld from me. I realize and I can see. My guest, Philip Connors, through the suicide of his brother, would come to see many things. About his brother, about his own life, and about the pain and loneliness of childhood trauma. And most of all, about our need to connect with each other and the power of those connections. Philip Connors is the author of the previous book, Fire Season. His writing has appeared in numerous publications, including Harper's and the Paris Review. It is my pleasure to welcome Philip Connors back to this program to talk about his book, All the Wrong Places, A Life Lost and Found. Philip, thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, it's good to be with you. Great to have you here. First of all, I want to talk about this subject of suicide in general, and it always is one of those subjects that people find hard to talk about, and it's amazing given the things people will talk about and that people will be so open about. There's still a taboo that surrounds the subject. Yeah, I think it might be perhaps our last taboo, the thing we find it hardest to talk about, um, which is one reason that I felt compelled to write about it. You know, for years and years, I didn't have anybody that I could talk about it with, but I still felt a need to, you know, find a way to have a conversation about it. So I had a conversation about it with myself in, in private notebooks, and it was just my sense that um, I, I needed to find a way to tell this, a story that was publicly worth sharing just to try to chip away at the taboo. What do you think that that taboo is about? I mean, we will talk about, and, and you know, people will talk about the most intimate details of their lives at the drop of a hat, but this is a subject that makes people very nervous. It does. Um, you know, part of it, I think, is just a, a leftover uh, taboo from the history of Western civilization, because for most of our civilization, we regarded God as the final arbiter on when life ended. And so for a human being to kind of usurp that that power from God was seen as perhaps the gravest of sins. Um, so there's that at play. Um, there's also the fact that for those left behind after this act, there's such a confusing stew of emotions and it's really hard to talk about that because on the one hand you have guilt um, about what you might have done to prevent this, a way you might have provided a, a sustaining connection. Um, but there's also the flip side of that, of, of sort of terrible anger at the person for having um, robbed us of that person's continuing presence in the world. And then, of course, just the devouring sadness of thinking that someone you loved and cared about chose death over life. And so you put all those things together, and it's a really confusing mix of emotions and really hard to talk about because it involves, you know, paradoxes and on the one hand this and on the other hand that. So There's also a sense that those things that you're talking about are related to each other in that a lot of the anger sometimes comes out of the anger that this person has created the guilt that you then have to live with. It becomes a, a kind of self-fulfilling loop there. 
Yes, exactly. You know, I, I've been talking to suicide survivors as I'm out on a book tour and connecting with people, and some of them, you know, some of them are very early in the process, months or a year or two after the death of someone they loved. And one question I get is, you know, how how long does it take to achieve forgiveness? Um, because there is a, a need, I think we feel, to forgive the person for that action, but it's really hard to get there. It's a, it's a slow road, and, you know, it's, it's not easy. It takes a lot of muddling through the darkness. Talk a little bit about your experience that you write about in all the wrong places. Your your experience, first of all, growing up with your brother, you two were, were pretty close. You lived on a farm. There weren't a lot of other people around. You really uh, had each other. Right. Yeah, we were fairly isolated. We lived in a rural area of southern Minnesota, grew up on a farm together. And because of that, we were pretty much all the other person had in the way of uh, entertainment and diversion as children. So we spent you know, pretty much every hour of every day together when we were boys. You know, we worked together on the farm. We played together on the farm. We spent a lot of time with our father in the fields and in the barns. And so early on in our lives, we were practically inseparable. Um, That would change over time as we each pursued different interests. But I, I have very fond memories of growing up with my brother, on that farm in southern Minnesota. How is it that even after you went your separate ways, and certainly lots of siblings, you know, pursue different things, go to different sides of the country, different parts of the world sometimes, and remain close, how is it that the two of you drifted apart? A couple of reasons. I think one was just the fact that we were young men in our early 20s, um, pursuing different interests and different paths in life. He graduated high school and entered the blue-collar workforce, moved to Albuquerque, New Mexico. I went to college, first in uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, and later in Missoula, Montana. So we were on opposite ends of the country, kind of pursuing opposite paths. Um, I I did have a chance to visit him in Albuquerque when uh, I was 22 years old. He was 21. And we reconnected then over this um, incredible experience that he shared with me, which was hot air ballooning. Mm-hmm. It was something he loved to do. Albuquerque is known as the, you know, the world capital of hot air ballooning. And after he moved there, he had taken up the hobby. And so when I went to visit him one winter, he took me up in a hot air balloon. And I really saw him, I think, for the first time then, as an adult, not just my kid brother, because I was the older, but uh, a, a real a real adult, a man coming into his own. And so we had a, a brief reconnection there. Yet he would make some comment, some racial slurs, something he said that really kind of turned you off in, in a pretty profound way. Yeah, that was the... That was the sad part about that visit is because it had been so so wonderful, so glorious, that hot air balloon ride so memorable. But at the beginning of that, uh, or I'm sorry, at the end of that visit, yeah, he made a passing comment 
uh, that I took to be you know, pretty distasteful and racist. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe he isn't grown up. Maybe he still has some maturing to do. And I was so disturbed by what he had said, I, I sort of cut him off and just wrote him off and thought, you know, when he grows up, then we can reconnect. And the sad thing is we never got that chance because we never talked again and I never saw him again after that. When you think about that incident in, in the broader context, do you think that you should have been more tolerant of, of him and of, of what he had to say at the time? You know, I don't think I needed to be tolerant of what he said, but I might have benefited from uh, just expressing my disagreement with what he said mm -hmm. instead of privately to myself saying, ah, kid needs to grow up. Mm -hmm. I'll deal with him when he does. And then just not talking to him about it. I should have just broached the subject with him and said, you know, dude, what you said is not right. And let's have a conversation about that because that might have been a way for us to stay connected instead of uh, once again drifting apart after that incident. And as you drifted apart after that incident, it was also a period of time that he was going through some rough patches. Yeah, um, I had gone to visit him that winter, winter of 95, in Albuquerque in part because he was engaged to be married and I wanted to meet the woman that he had planned to spend the rest of his life with. That uh, engagement broke off, and I think that caused him some pain. Um, he eventually got into a new relationship, and that lasted for a while, but the woman was kind of coming out of her own tough marriage. She had a couple of kids. She was about 10 years older than Dan, my brother. And, and that relationship sort of foundered as well on just the complications involved in that whole situation. And so, he, you know, he had his, his heart broken a couple of times in that stretch of time after I saw him last and, and before he committed suicide. That never quite seemed an adequate explanation for committing suicide, but um, nonetheless, I think it caused him some pain. As this happened... And at one point, your mother urged you to call him. She called you up and said, things are tough for him. You should give him a call. Yeah, I had traveled cross-country. I, I had arranged a summer internship in New York City. And so when I finally arrived after a long drive from Montana, I called my mom, and we spoke. And she told me, you know, I talked to your brother earlier today, and he sounded kind of down. He's having troubles with his girlfriend. It seems like things are falling apart there. He sounded, you know, pretty sad. And maybe you should call him and, and just connect and try to cheer him up. And I hung up the phone, and I thought, you know, I'll, I'll call him in a couple days, maybe next week. I want to get settled here in New York. I had just arrived. And as it turned out, that was the last day of his life. Um, he did not last through the night, and I, I was always haunted by that fact that my mother had urged me to call him, and if I had put down the phone with her and dialed his number, um, the story might have had a different ending. Is your sense of emotion about it, your sense of guilt about it, the things that you went through about it, the fact that you didn't make the call and didn't have a chance to connect with him? 
before this happened or that you actually might have been able to do something to prevent it? Well, you know, the guilt is is complex and and multi-layered. I think, you know, part of it was that I had cut him off and I hadn't I hadn't cultivated that connection with him. Part of it was certainly that I felt like I had a chance to save him and I missed it. Um, and part of it was just the sense that how could, you know, I had one brother. I also have a sister, but I had one brother in this world and uh, I was the older um I had grown up Catholic. I had absorbed the lesson of being one's brother's keeper. And something had happened to him, and he had lost the the threads of connection to everybody in his life. And I, I couldn't puzzle out why, but I just felt culpable in in ways I couldn't even necessarily name. And this goes back to the beginning of our conversation about the taboo that surrounds this. Part of it is, it is so counterintuitive to the human desire for life that it's just so hard to understand. Talk a little bit about your your immediate reaction to it and trying to imagine where he was and how this must have happened and what his life must have been like to drive him to that. Yeah, I spent years trying to imagine myself into my brother's head in those moments because, you know, we do have um, an impulse to preserve ourselves. It seems like a very basic, perhaps the most basic human instinct, self-preservation. So to think that he had got to a place where he didn't want to preserve himself, or in fact he actively sought out the means to not preserve himself um, was a very difficult thing that I tried for years to imagine my way into because um, it, it seems to violate that basic human instinct and that thought we, I think we all share that individual human lives are precious and why he would view his own as not precious and not worth preserving was an extremely vexing question. It took a while, but after at a certain point, you really decided that you needed to know more. You needed to understand what happened, what went on. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, well, years passed, and I felt in some ways, like in my my own head, I was stuck. Um, For one thing, I felt it to be a, a terrible result of his death that I couldn't get past his death. It was like his death defined his life. And I didn't want to feel that way about him. He had lived for 22 years. Um, He was a very competent, mature, uh, tough young man who had done a lot of good things in his time on Earth. But I couldn't seem to access that part of him. And so I thought, you know, the only way through the darkness that defined the end of his life to trying to re-access who he was in life was just, I was going to need to confront the fact of his death as head-on as possible. And so I did things like track down the police report about his death, the 
autopsy report. There were photographs in both instances that I felt compelled in this uh, quest for a kind of ruthless honesty about him and what he had done uh, to look at and study. And in some ways that helped. You know, I hadn't seen him at the wake or at the funeral because it was a closed casket funeral for obvious reasons. He had used a gun to end his life. And so for years that led to really uh, intense dreams I had in which he was still alive and I was trying to find a way to save him. And confronting those things in the reports and the photos actually put an end to that, which was a good first step for me. And then when you went to talk to his uh, ex-girlfriend, you found out even more. Yeah, I kept trying to track down people who had known him and loved him at the end of his life. People who might have known him better than I did at the end. And in one instance, I found uh, the woman he had been engaged to be married to. And we had a long conversation over dinner one evening in Albuquerque. I had flown down to, to talk to her. and We looked at photographs and reminisced and... Toward the end of the evening, she said to me, you know, your brother had a secret, and I wonder if he ever shared it with you. And I thought, gosh, I don't know of any secret. I, I can't think what that could possibly be. And uh, we talked about it some more, and I was able to, to coax her to share it with me because it, I think it became clear to both of us that she was probably the only person on earth that he had shared this secret with. And what she told me, ultimately was that my brother had um, been the victim of a violent sexual assault when he was a boy. And he had carried this secret with him all his life, only probably shared it ever with her in a moment of, of vulnerability and feeling like he was losing her. And that little piece of information uh, sort of seemed to unlock the puzzle of him and and why he had been a tormented soul so much so that he had chosen to end his life. Um, it's not something I ever wanted to learn about my brother. It's a terrible thing to think that that happened to him. But in some ways, it put his death in a new context and helped me understand it better. Did your quest end there, or did you seek to find out more about what had happened? It didn't quite end there. Um I actually happened to know the identity of the person uh, based on what my brother had told to his fiancée and what she then shared with me. And I felt compelled to pay a visit to that person, um, which was extremely difficult and unsatisfying because, you know, here I am coming to him carrying what amount to not much more than an innuendo uh, room, you know, a rumor whispered from the lips of the dead. And I didn't have a leg to stand on with him, you know, but I felt the need to at least confront him and let him know that I knew what had happened. And again, not a very satisfying encounter, uh, but it felt necessary. And then, uh, I also talked to the woman who he had been, my brother had been involved with at the very end of his life, his, his last girlfriend, just to see how she was 
doing um, because there was a sense that I had that she might also be suffering from from tremendous guilt at having broken up with him just on the eve of, of him committing suicide. And she and I had a very uh, touching, intimate sort of conversation that it, while it didn't tell me anything new necessarily, it felt like the right move for both of us to reach out all these years later. We're talking now, you know, 16, 18 years later, she and I had this conversation. So that's really as far as I I was able to take it. I, I, I couldn't really take it any further than that, I don't think. And what do you come away with in terms of, of what you learned about our connections with each other and, and the things that we tell, the things that we keep secret, how it impacts us and how this has all changed you? Well, yeah, the one thing I do come away with is the sense that that which we cannot talk about is the thing that has the power potentially to devour us. I think in the end that was probably my brother's story. And it's a story shared by a lot of young men in this country. Um, if you want to talk about another taboo, um, wade into the subject of, of boyhood sexual abuse. Um, and so, given that what he couldn't share with anyone else in the world, except one other person in a moment of anguish, um, and, and where that, I think, led him in his life, I feel like the taboo surrounding suicide, um, it's my obligation to take out my little hammer and chisel and try to chip away a little bit at it because, again, it's one of those things that because we can't talk about it or we find it so hard to talk about, it has the potential to devour and disfigure us. And I I see it as I go around uh, the Southwest doing book events, people coming up to me afterwards, sharing their story. It feels like those little acts of connection with people and being honest with people, even about the, the most difficult and darkest things in our lives, that is what is going to provide us a, a sustaining connection. And uh, I hope to continue doing that. Philip Connors, the book is All the Wrong Places, A Life Lost and Found, just out from W.W. Norton. Philip, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, it was a pleasure. Thank